Oh, what joy, what joy, wonderful. Thank you for that music. Everyone, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 17. A topic here to, uh, today that a lot of people don't like talking about. A lot of churches don't like discussing or even considering. And as we progress to uh, this chapter, as I read, you're going to notice uh, a lot of uh, similarities to Matthew chapter 18 that we read during the scripture reading time. Uh, this could be due to the fact that Luke was condensing material from the same occasion. Uh, more likely, Jesus taught similar material or the same material on multiple occasions. You know, remember there were no recording, voice, uh, recording of voices in that day. So as he would go to multiple audiences in different locations, he would surely repeat themes to the multitudes that he encountered. Uh, he would have probably also reinforced certain principles directly to his disciples by drawing their attention to it again and again. In chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, Forgive him. That whole passage there, if you look through Matthew chapter 18, even previous to what we read during our scripture reading time, all that material is in Matthew chapter 18, about hanging the millstone and, and other things. Clearly, Christ wanted his disciples to realize that, that there would come stumbling blocks, that is, offenses or temptations. These are sins that, that might cause other believers to stumble as well. Uh, the term in the Greek is scandalon. And, and that was used originally to refer to a bait stick that was put into a snare in order to, to trap a bird or an animal. A stumbling block is not, not a whole lot unlike that, that small piece of cheese that you put into that little spring-loaded mousetrap in order to allure uh, the victim to the trap. So a stumbling block is is an alluring temptation that entices a victim to step into it. And we notice this temptation is introduced in our passage by way of a person. A person introduces the stumbling block. In fact, the Greek word order would more literally be represented in this way. It is impossible that stumbling blocks not come. It's going to happen. It is impossible that they not come. It is inevitable. So Jesus wants his followers to anticipate that, to be conditioned, because there are going to be temptations that are going to cause us to stumble uh, if we're not ready. They will surely come. But although it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, it is not inevitable that we must step into the trap. When we see a temptation, we're to identify it, folks. We are to see it. We are to warn others about it. We are to warn the church about it. And even warn that person through whom the stumbling block comes. You might have noticed I titled this message, Hate the Sin 
but love the sinner. That is a slogan I am very familiar with because I grew up as a youth, believe it or not, unfortunately, um, learning that. And it was used in the tradition I grew up in to excuse behavior that was openly sinful. Hate the sin but love the sinner was the rationale I was taught not to directly or to not directly confront obvious sin. Obvious sin by someone even claiming to be a Christian. Hate the sin but love the sinner meant, yet don't draw attention to it. Just love them. Don't worry about the sin. So we have to answer this question. Is turning a blind eye towards sin or away from sin, it's blind, it won't see it either way, is that a loving act toward a sinner? Is that loving? And this passage will answer the question, it kind of depends. kind of depends. But for serious sins, it is surely not. It is not loving because sin by nature is destructive. It's destructive to the individual. It, it is damaging to Christ's church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that flagrant sin left alone is, well, it's like a little bit of leaven. Well, when it's left alone, it'll eventually leaven the whole lump of dough, the entire lump. Instead, uh, we are told by Christ that his disciples who follow him are to detect, they are to confront serious sins, um, serious sins to show that we love that sinner, that we love them enough to confront it, the one who is placing a bait in front of other Christians. He or she needs to be warned. He or she needs to be uh, assured that the penalty they will face. Folks, it's incredibly severe in this passage and in Matthew chapter 18 Woe to him through whom the stumbling blocks come. It would be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around his or her neck and they were thrown into the sea than that they would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, it's essential to recognize that the type of temptation that Jesus is sounding the alarm about here is it's, it's probably not a subtle sin. Probably not a, a, a subtle one. We all know that James 3 verse 2 reminds us that we all stumble in many ways, right? We all stumble in many ways. There, stumble is a different Greek word actually that, that simply suggests uh, not a bait stick, but an, an acknowledgement that we all sin. That's what James is saying. We, we all sin in many ways. We all stumble. And there James is especially drawn a, drawing attention uh, to the tongue being a common source to much stumbling, right? Uh, we all know that pretty easily. It's a recognition we have all sinned when saying words that we really shouldn't. Maybe they weren't kind. Maybe they weren't appropriate. Uh, sometimes we say things in, in very minor manners that can become an offense. Uh, I also imagine there's more than one person here who always drives more than five miles or about five miles an hour over the speed limit. Don't raise your hand. Is that sin? Romans 13 would say it is. That, that is actually sin. But I don't think 
any of us are probably going to need to rebuke Gerald over driving a little bit fast. You know what I'm saying? Five miles and over. We're probably not going to have to address that. That's probably not a huge threat to the church. Or, or letting your property become overgrown by weeds. As a Christian, you know, is, is, is failing to maintain your property to the extent the unbeliever, unbelieving neighbors are, are cursing you because the, the bottom's falling out of the neighborhood's uh, uh, price. The values are, the ta- are in the tank. Stuff like that's sin. It is. It is. That, that's a poor testimony to your Lord. But the church probably isn't going to need to confront you over things such as that most of the time. You know, instead, I'll, I'll just call the city and they'll confront you over it. <laughs> Someone told me there's an app for that. There's an app for that. and I don't know. The stumbling blocks about which Christ is speaking are those that will cause his little ones to stumble. It's a baited trap. It literally says, one that would scandalize these little ones. One of his little ones. Little ones refers not, not to children here, but to all believers, any age. We are his little ones. In a near identical passage appearing both in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, and Mark chapter 9, verse 42, the text reads this way, Whoever calls one, uh, causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have, have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So it is, it's believers we're talking about. We're the little ones. You could be uh, 80 years old and, and just come to Christ and you're a new believer and uh, you might stumble because someone has drawn you and you might be a very refined Christian and actually stumble into things that you might thought uh, after all these years, you were never, would have never been tempted by again. The warning to Mr. or Mrs. whoever in that passage. It refers to anyone who through sinful behavior is attracting other Christians to do the same. Luring them in, drawing them in. Um, the offender could be a believer uh, might be an unbeliever, could be, as 1 Corinthians 5 uh, describes, a so-called believer who really knows. They go by the name, but they're kind of so-called. And if Christ says, think about this for a second, if Christ tells us that it would be better for him or her to have a millstone hung around their neck and cast into the sea than to tempt anyone else, is it loving to allow that individual to continue setting out traps baited for other Christians. Would, would that be loving to anybody? Think about that. We can be pretty confident that allowing that behavior to persist unchecked wouldn't be loving to that person, and it wouldn't be loving to the Christians in the church. Um, if having a giant millstone draped around your neck is better, Jesus says it's better, then surely the penalty that will be assigned to that person for such an offense will be severe indeed. It'll be severe. So for the sake of that person who sets or lays out or baits the trap, um, for the sake of the love of Christ's church, for his holy ones, 
Jesus tells his disciples we need to step in and challenge when we see it. Um, in fact, the danger is, is of such alarm. It's of such alarm that in our scripture reading earlier from Matthew chapter 18, Jesus prescribed tiers of intervention. Three tiers of intervention. Tier one, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Tier two, if the brother or sister refuses to listen, take along one or two others, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And then tier three, if he or she remains unrepentant after witnesses are brought in, um, bring it under the authority of the church, and if he refuses to listen to them, the church, let let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That's someone you would not associate with in the Jewish world in that day. Um, ones that, the, that uh, certainly the Pharisees would never touch. They were to be someone who would be kept at a distance. You know, I'm not going to unpack uh, those three tiers today. I don't have time for that. I'm not going to look at them in detail. I, I'm simply going to summarize them because that, that appears to be what Luke is doing in Luke chapter 17. But beginning in verse 3 of Luke 17, Jesus says, Our first initiative is to be on your guard. Folks, we need to be very watchful on behalf of ourselves and for the flock for bait sticks, for bait that might be left around or creep in, that if left unaddressed would spread and infect the entire church. Uh, We are to hate that kind of sin. We are to hate that sin and love the sinner enough uh, through our willingness, expressed through our willingness to address it. That's what is loving, is, is addressing uh, that, that, that sin. Sexual immorality, when we think about that, um, it's surely not the only offense that, that reaches that threshold. Usually the first one that comes to mind, right? It's, it's so prevalent in our culture. It was in Corinth. Uh, was, it, it has been in every society uh, from the beginning, and uh, the Apostle Paul had to address it in Corinth as, as immorality had become so accepted in the church, so broadly accepted, that the, the Corinthians tolerated it rather than actually addressing the problem, purging it from their church. So the Apostle Paul intervened, declaring this. He said, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan. Is that serious or what? It's incredibly strong language. And it, through the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, includes the removing and the disassociating from any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat, eat with such a one. So it is these references, Paul just stated, that point us to a class of sin, if I may use that, that terminology, a category of sin, potentially, that spreads like gangrene. It, it, once tolerated, it, it, it infects everyone. Once it's overlooked, everybody knows, well, nobody's going to say anything about that. Uh, it requires confrontation, according to the Apostle Paul. If necessary, even removal. This is what he listed. 
sexual immorality, greed, revilers, those would be slanderers, drunkards and swindlers, just to name a few. It's not an exhaustive list. It's some that he came up with in that location. You'll find others in other parts of Scripture. And in, in the church in Corinth, you read through that. Uh, we're studying that in the men's group on Wednesday evening right now. The, every one of those had infected Corinth. All of them. Uh, all, and all these sins had contributed to much division there. Just very much division. There was sectarianism, even to the point that they were partaking in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do today. They were doing it exclusively in sectarian groups. They, they were separating from one another and favoring certain people. There was much division in that church. In Corinth, the mistakes that allowed the leaven of sin to influence the whole church, the whole lump of dough, they were inaction and indifference. That's what allowed it to continue. A failure to obey, as Christ warned us in in verse 3, be on your guard. Watch out. Be careful. Folks, simply being on your guard as an individual and as a church, that mitigates most threats to the flock. Not all, but mitigates most. Uh, This is one reason shepherds or pastors, they're always to remain watchful and alert. In Acts 20, uh, Paul tells the shepherds in Ephesus, be on guard. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So to be a pastor and elder, you not only need to to meet the qualifications we find in places like uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus, uh, you also need to have a healthy aversion to bait sticks. A healthy uh, discernment to those types of things. You know, pastors always remain alert, or they are to always remain alert, to, to things like sinful outbursts, you know, sectarian behavior, division, especially alert to false doctrine. Because if we, if we can identify it early, this, this is the best part. If we can identify it early, even that person, that bad actor, if I may call him that, through which it might be introduced, even they can be spared if it's addressed early. And out of a motive of love for him or her, we want to be that person who notices traps, ones that can be confronted early for their own good before they, they manifest themselves in uh, in in further ways or worse ways. Folks, pastors are to do this, but Luke chapter 17 isn't merely talking to pastors. It's to any disciple, to disciples of Christ. It's not exclusively for pastors. All disciples are to be watchful because the early detection of sin is crucial for a number of reasons. A number of reasons. I'm going to take a moment, by the way, it's good timing here because we have some new members joining us again today. I'm going to take a moment to read the introduction to our church covenant. This is the covenant that we sign up for, uh, and bullet point A that summarizes so well what Jesus is asking us to do in Luke chapter 17. The introduction begins, Having been brought by God's grace to embrace Jesus Christ as personal Savior from sin and Lord of our lives, we do solemnly and joyfully covenant with each other to walk together with him in brotherly love. Therefore we purpose 
the following. Bullet point A. I'll just read one. That we will exercise Christian care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully exhort, encourage, and admonish each other as the occasion may arise. That's Luke chapter 17. And the, uh, the scriptural authority that we cite for that is Colossians 1 verse 28 that says, We proclaim him, meaning Christ, admonishing every man, that is correcting every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Our passage today in Luke, um, it could be employed as another biblical citation for that same point A that we had, that we watch over one another. It is the same principle. We are to be concerned for one another and for Christ's church. And, and I want to assure you that we're not to find this intimidating. Uh, we, we aren't to fear this type of watchfulness because the motive behind the correction or, or the admonishment, it's always love and restoration. It's always repentance and forgiveness. It's always for the defense of Christ's church. And we need to be cautious against you know, using warnings like we find in verse 2, Luke chapter 17, verse 2, we need to be cautious about using warnings such as that to think to ourselves, well, yeah, God's really going to get them. That millstone and everything, oh, I hope I'm there when I see that, when he does that. You know, they're going to get what they deserve. And, you know, we could, our emotions, our, our sinful flesh could say, you know, I might even be there to help him hang that around our neck. As if, as if it's something we should be relishing. So often these types of verses are used in that way. Um, that's not the reaction, by the way, that Jesus is searching for. In verse 3, where it says, Be on your guard. Uh, you can't see it in the English either. I, I want to make mention of this. It's important for when we get to Peter's statement in Matthew chapter 18. But when it says, Be on your guard, you can't see it in the English uh, most of the modern English versions, but the your is plural. All y'all, right? The King James translates the beginning of this verse better, saying, take heed to yourselves. Meaning, all. Take heed to yourselves. There you can sense the plural. Jesus is dis- uh, addressing his disciples as a group, as a family. Um, watch out. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if Paul would have had the opportunity to apply Luke chapter 17 to the sexual immorality in Corinth, he might have said something like this. You know, if you would have been watching, you know, you all could have stopped this from the very beginning if you'd just been watching. Way ahead of time you could have stopped it. That would have been the loving thing to do. Just to stop it before it got out of control. We don't want to tie a millstone around anybody's neck. We don't want anybody having a necktie made out of a millstone. Nobody wants that. We want to forgive. If you or I encounter a brother or sister sinning and we address it quickly, uh, we'll save everyone in the church a lot of agony. Everybody. Especially... uh, the bad actor, the perpetrator, whatever we call, identify that person. 
we should have concern for them. And again, we need to be cautious to recognize that this is a category of sin that, that rises to the level that it will scandalize others. Um, it's, it's not every single sin that we can think of. Let me explain. I'd imagine each of us... <laughs> Each of us here is immensely grateful that this church, Port St. Lucie Bible Church, is not saturated with ex-members of Hitler's Gestapo. For you young folks who, who don't, maybe haven't read yet on history uh, of World War II, the Gestapo secret police were ruthless in exposing adversaries of Hitler. They were watching for them. They were out to get them. They wanted to label them. They wanted to pin them down. But members of Christ's body are not adversaries to one another, hoping to expose every minor character flaw. Maybe to make ourselves feel righteous. You know, I honestly do not sense, this is honest from my heart, I don't sense a judgmental spirit uh, or condemning spirit in this congregation at all. I really don't. Uh, So thankfully, the last part of this lesson, for us here, it's more preventative medication or preventative diet. Just to be reminded of all of this, not a prescription for a chronic illness. Because that can infect a church too. We are very long-suffering, forgiving, and need to continue to be in this church. Colossians 3 verse 12 reminds us, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. We need to remain forgiving of complaints against one another. You know, you know, not all sins uh, require that we pull the fire handle and, and dial 911. Not all are a big to-do or need a big to-do made about them, especially when the offenses are minor. They're small offenses, personal um, offenses. Forgiving, folks, forgiving is far better than courtroom litigation. Ask anybody who's been there. Um... I'm sure, I'm certain that I have offended uh, persons here, either through poorly timed words or a lack of words or or the type of words uh, that I didn't catch myself saying or wasn't careful enough because I'm prone to being oblivious and sinful. I'm prone to that. But I don't think I orchestrate my words. You see the difference? Orchestrate my words with an intent to injure on purpose. That's, That's a different type of thing. And when I've been offended, I don't think most of the time it was deliberate. I really don't. Uh, I don't think it was premeditated. And as I grow in Christ, yeah, I don't get roused as quickly as I once did. If God forgave me, I guess I should forgive others as well. And I think most of you would agree that usually when people offend us, most of the time they didn't even know they did it. Maybe they weren't careful enough, true. But we're to quickly forgive. There are other offenses that we must be ready to forgive quickly. I I know most Christians... (laughs) I might get myself in trouble here. Let me take a drink first. 
there are offenses we must forgive, and, and I know most Christians are not terribly fond of smoking. We also know it's a very difficult habit to break. Very difficult. I've stated in membership orientation that we ask people to avoid smoking on the property. Um, we don't want to model that to our young people. Uh, people young people, that, that's a very dangerous uh, habit and difficult to stop. Don't do it, please. Please don't do it. Um, I've had more than a couple people here transparent and honest enough in private to say, you know, they struggle with it. They struggle with it. And you know what? I'm more concerned about the victory of that person than I am making an example out of them and exposing them. And the highest priority Christians should want to have is to defend the reputations of our fellow Christians. Very, very important. Uh, We need to use discernment because Jesus isn't addressing all offenses here. Now if someone started handing out Paul Malls before Sunday school, then we're going to have a problem. But we know all sins are not rebuked equally in the same way. James says, to one who knows the right thing to do and, and does not do it, to him it is sin. But, but we don't go around calling people out for you know, failing to chip in or failing to do something. It is sin, but you don't go confront people most of the time. We've learned uh, in Luke there are def- differing offenses of sin, differing levels of sin. Not, not tears really, but there, there are offenses that offend more than others. Look at our legal code. Speeding for five over, you're probably never going to get it. That's why we do it. Not me. <laughs> Speeding at 20 over, you're going to get a pretty nice fine, a couple points, I imagine. 30, 40 over, oh, you're going to jail. Directly to jail. Do not pass go. You see, even in our legal code, um, we recognize this all the time. Not all penalties are identical for offenses. Uh, We see this in Scripture. There are certain offenses that are abominations to the Lord. There are others that we overlook out of love. Um, When a church majors in the minors, you follow me? When a church majors in the minors and deputizes a Gestapo, oh, it begins to suffer immensely. Immensely. Um, There are questionable questionable activities that aren't in Scripture. You know, one, one Christian sees another in a bikini, another with a glass of wine at a restaurant. And the next thing you know, there's an uproar. Somebody wanting to expose what they feel offends them. They want the perpetrator of that publicly rebuked. I'm glad we're not like that here. There have been churches that have become strung so tight Their guitar strings are so tight that they hang their hat on passages like this, meaning to rebuke. Nobody enjoys being around one another anymore. You're dressing wrong. Your makeup is wrong. It's all wrong. Your style of music you listen to is wrong. You have too many tattoos. That's wrong. But these are not the category of things that Jesus is warning against. How do I know? How do I know? Because Scripture nowhere directly addresses them. 
This rebuke is reserved for sins that spread like gangrene and we have to always be cautious. Disfellowship is for those sins that threaten to contaminate the flock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul gives us examples of these already. Sexual immorality, that goes without saying. Well, it doesn't today, but we know what it is. Covetousness, someone who is greedy. Swindlers, those who are thieving. Idolaters, hopelessly materialistic. Revilers, those who slander others' reputations. Drunkards, those who abuse substance. Scripturally, these characterize the threats that are dangerous. So be on your guard. Be on your guard. How would we stage an intervention? You'll probably encounter this before Gerald or I or any of the elders do. Probably will. And for their sake, you rebuke him or her privately first, in a group second, church gets involved third. Hopefully it never gets that far. The earlier the better, because it just spares their reputation. Just spares their reputation. You must hate the sin, but love the sinner. You know, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And I believe Luke 17, verse 3, if you can get a finger back in Matthew 18 and keep one in 17, 3, I believe Luke 17, verse 3, ends the prescription for confronting the majors that we just mentioned. The major sins. That process is structured in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. If he refuses to listen after three efforts, Jesus says, treat him or her as a Gentile or a tax collector. Uh, Paul commanded the church with these words, remove the wicked man from among you. Verse 4 then in Luke chapter 17, put on your thinking hats now, it introduces a new thought as it corresponds to uh, Matthew 18 21, where Peter begins to speak. Verse 4 introduces a new thought. Both of these locations have to do with smaller personal offenses. Because Jesus had, had already said in Matthew 18, expel the wicked brother on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus is very clear, just like Paul, remove him, disfellowship him or her. Oh, how cruel. How cruel. Dare we do that? Dare we do that? Answer is yes. Answer is yes. Jesus says when two or three witnesses agree on the offense. That's what it's talking about. When two or three witnesses agree and when prayerfully addressed, not running roughshod over people, God assures it shall be done on the basis of two or three witnesses. And where two or three witnesses have gathered in my name and provided testimony about another man's sinful conduct, Jesus says, I'm with you. I am with you. Biblically, courtroom verdicts always hinge on the basis of two or three witnesses. That's Old Testament and New, so that every fact about an unrepentant brother can be confirmed in Matthew chapter 18. The phrase where two or three are gathered. It's not reassurance that God is with us wherever two or three are gathered. He is equally present if you are a Christian locked away from your faith in a solitary jail cell. God is there too, yes. 
what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20 in context, is that when the church has prayerfully gathered, having heard and cross-examined all evidence about an immoral brother on the basis of two or three witnesses, whenever two or three agree, our decision is God's decision. Jesus affirms he is present in spirit right there in our midst. Don't hesitate. Remove the immoral brother. Treat him as a Gentile or tax collector. Matthew 18, it's for so long been misinterpreted and misapplied in numerous ways. Some have said when two or three have gathered sincerely to pray, God will do whatever you ask. That's not it. It's been used to suggest anywhere two or three Christians are gathered, even on a plane flight for an hour or two, it establishes they're having church wherever two or three are gathered. That's error. That's error. They haven't covenanted themselves together. They don't come under a common uh, church. They make no um, ongoing commitment to one another in a local church. Uh, They're going to get off the plane in a couple hours and probably never see one another again. That's not having church. What verses 15 through 20 mean in context is that when two or three witnesses have been gathered and testimony supplied to the church of an unrepentant brother, Christ wants the man purged. Purged from the flock. Christ saying, I'm there in your midst, is him reassuring the church that we are actually acting in his name, in what he would want to have done. Um, Comparatively, in verse 21 of Matthew 18... The subject, subject changes. It changes from a church disciplinary procedure to a personal dispute. Peter steps into the picture and, and to ask the Lord, how often should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? See, it went from plural, your, speaking of everyone, where Peter's saying, this is me, singular. Don't miss the clear change of the topic to a personal matter. And and we see a same subtle transition that exists between Luke 17.3 and verse 4. As Jesus says there, if he sins against you. Again, singular. The you implies you as a private privately being offended. And in Matthew 18, verse 21, again, the discussion is no longer about sins, threatening or impacting the church, but personality disputes, problems between the brethren. Uh, With sins against the church, Jesus, in Matthew 18, already been clear. Three strikes and you're out. That's That's already under the table. Done. So Peter decides to ask then, well, what if my brother sins against me? If it's three strikes and you're out for the church... How often should I forgive him? Maybe seven times? Jesus replies, well, in that case, Peter, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times. And in Luke, Jesus says, and if a brother sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. What Jesus is telling us and Peter, get over it. Quit being so easily offended. Not talking about the unrepentant brother who's gone through church discipline already. Someone's, as I said earlier, if someone goes 70 times, 7 times repeating the same offense, they're not repentant. 
It isn't talking about sins threatening the church. It's talking about personal offenses. We need to be exceedingly forgiven, forgiving. We don't just turn a blind eye, permit the immoral brother to continue repeating a serious offense such as that because they're not repentant, if that's the case. Um, There are serious sins that require to be addressed by the church. Then there are personal sins that rub you wrong. They annoy you. Forgiveness and restoration is always the goal. Always the goal. Um, They're the loving responses. That's what's loving. Uh, But so is putting an immoral brother out when he he or she won't stop tempting the church. That also is loving, both to them and to the church. If he or she is actually a Christian, they should respond to steps one, two, or three. If they bow up against the church, Jesus says, remove them. Remove them. In a moment, I will ask the the men to come forward to serve the Lord's Supper. Uh, Last week, I made mention of doctrinal sins that must be expelled from the church. Paul doesn't include heresy in the list of 1 Corinthians 5, but he makes it very clear elsewhere, a focus of his in many other places in Scripture. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 17, the talk of Hymenaeus and Philetus was spreading like gangrene. And among other areas, uh, errors, these two men had gone astray from the truth, teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. They were really upsetting Christians, is what Paul writes. Teaching that the resurrection had already occurred and you missed it. That wouldn't be good. I'd be pretty upset too. As I said last week, few heresies are as serious as questioning the virgin birth and deity of Christ. Just kind of picking up where we left off there. And I used an example of a famous pastor in Atlanta who, who's just completely okay with that. Doubt the virgin birth. Preaches to thousands a week, so I guess by default that makes him successful and above rebuke. But these doctrinal errors are they're not new to the church. Church has always been plagued by them. One of the first attacks on the early church, significant attacks, was questioning the nature of Christ. Is he eternally God? Is he just a man? A priest named Arius made an argument that Jesus Christ is not eternally God, but came into existence at some point being created by God. This is a heresy that we refer to as Arianism. Any teaching that denies the eternal sonship and deity of Christ, it's usually a manifestation of Arianism. It's all around us, folks. It is all around us. Uh, Among many errors, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses deny the Trinity and or eternality of Christ. As a religious sect, Seventh-day Adventists believe Jesus is not eternally God, but that Christ was created, Michael the Archangel. I'm not saying that every person who attends those churches even realizes that. But that's what their official doctrine believes. Jesus was created. Um, Ran into it right here about four years ago. A man attending for a few weeks, wasn't a member, and a back couple rows here started telling people that Jesus was Michael the Archangel. We heard about it, got wind about it, because people were watching. They brought it to our attention. Gerald was able to catch him out front. 
Did you give him three chances? He wasn't a member. The guy wasn't a member. Jesus, Gerald caught him very firmly. You don't doubt the deity of Christ, the virgin birth. You cannot do that and be Christian. So he just confronted him politely, asked the guy, is this what you believe? Is this what you're teaching? The guy said, yes. Gerald said, you're not welcome here. You're not welcome here. Good job, Gerald. That's how we respond. Um, he, he was given opportunities to say, if you will sit under the teaching of this church, fine. You can continue to come. Uh, if you're going to teach things like that, you're not welcome here. Speaking of Arianism and confronting it, led by a bishop named Alexander and a deacon named Athanasius, the early church settled this dispute at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD as they ratified in creed what Scripture has always clearly taught. This is great stuff. The Council of Nicaea, folks, did not invent the deity of Christ. You will hear that. They defended orthodox, that means correct believing Christianity, from attack. That's what they were doing. Since most Christians could not read and did not have Bibles, over 300 bishops attending this council fashioned a creed that all Christians could easily memorize. It's called the Nicene Creed, right? And as Matthew 18 requires, the council, after many calls for Arianism, or Arian, uh, Arius to repent, the council disfellowshipped. Excommunicated is another word we use. An unrepentant Arius and two, maybe it was three others, I forget. If the men would, uh, uh, as we think about this in Christ's deity, if the men would please come forward to, to serve the Lord's Supper. True Christians know that through a virgin birth, God became incarnate as a man, means he became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life and he died on the cross bearing the penalty of sins for all humanity. He rose again on the third day and God the Father grants forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation only to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We're going to distribute the bread first.